0: The History of the World Podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 3, The Classical World, Episode 56, The Scythians. glance, we might suggest that the steppe cultures were just nomadic tribes who were around at the same time as the Romans, the Greeks, the Persians, the Indian subcontinental cultures and the earliest Chinese dynasties. Talking about them and devoting episodes of this podcast series might even seem like an obligation. People who we ought to include because they were around at that time. Just because they have not left us a lot in terms of written records and just because they weren't as sedentary or centralised as the glorious classical world cultures that we have devoted so much time to, it doesn't give us any excuse of falling into a trap of suggesting that we could overlook them. This is impossible. We are talking about the geographical descendants of the Proto-Indo-Europeans. We are talking about the original masters of the horse. We are talking about the inhabitants of the earliest silk roads. The nomads of Central Asia were an important connecting culture for all of the Eurasian cultures and it is for that reason that we are including them. But we dare not ignore them. We find that we have to turn to outside sources to piece together the story of the steppe cultures but we already had to do that with the Celts and the Germanic peoples. We can look at the Scythians in a similar way to the Celts and the Germanic tribes in that they didn't necessarily look upon themselves as united but they did have cultural and indeed DNA links with each other. We also have the problem of perception. Just like the Celts and the Germanic peoples, they didn't view themselves as culturally linked. It would be the Romans and the Greeks who looked upon them as culturally linked. And it would be the Romans and Greeks who would name them in a similar way that they named the Phoenicians and the Germans and the Picts, just to name a few. The geography of the Eurasian steppe actually stretches from Central Europe all the way over to the Pacific coastal regions of modern-day Russia. The steppe is characterised by rolling grassland plains and a lack of trees. The Eurasian steppe runs from the Russian region of Manchuria in the Far East, where it is called the Eastern Steppe, through Siberia westwards. It runs through southern Russia and northern Kazakhstan, where it becomes the Kazakh Steppe. It then reaches the northern Caucasus, where the grasslands continue to run along the north banks of the Black Sea, which is where it is named the Pontic Caspian Steppe, which we will call the Pontic Steppe for convenience. The grasslands continue into Europe to the Pannonian Steppe, centred on the modern country of Hungary. ...and its Great Hungarian Plain. The climate of the steppe is diverse from season to season. Hot summers can be followed by cold winters... ...and rainfall tends to be more reliable the further west you travel. In the east, the steppe is comparatively dry... ...and this is why throughout history we can typically see the westward migrations of nomadic human groups as societies seek more fertile land. The grass was always greener whenever you headed west. So we see nomadic steppe cultures such as the Huns, the Turks and the Mongols always heading west. Until the emergence of classical antiquity we have very little in the way of writing describing the people of the steppe. The Scythian culture is one of the first known cultures of the steppe but archaeology can be our only indicator regarding their origins. When we look at Assyrian texts from the early 1st millennium BCE we see descriptions of a steppe culture called the Sumerians not to be confused with the Sumerians who were the Mesopotamian culture that we spoke about at the start of volume 2. The Cimmerian culture of the steppe were mentioned during our episode about the Assyrian Empire, which was episode 7 of volume 2, and they were mentioned alongside the Scythians. The Cimmerians are described as a Scythian culture people, but we also see the Scythians described as the overthrowers of the Cimmerians. So what exactly is going on here? Well, we can look at the aforementioned attitudes of the Greek and Latin writers of classical antiquity to find the answer to that. According to them, everyone from the steppe was Scythian. However, historically, we can distinguish the different cultures and peoples within the steppe. The people who we now describe as the Scythian tribes were part of a wider Scythian culture, recognised by the writers of classical antiquity. This wider culture included the Cimmerians and the Sarmatians who we have also mentioned as the people of the Pontic steppe that the Goths integrated with and who became ancestral to the Ostrogoths. The Scythian people can also be described as classical Scythians to distinguish them from the Cimmerians and the Sarmatians. Herodotus actually recognised the difference between the Scythian cultures of the steppe in his writings. Herodotus also speculated about the origin of the Scythians but was also very careful to give a broad perspective on this subject describing the Scythian mythology alongside his own opinion relating to a westward migration theory. Archaeologically an origin theory has always been challengeable but recent genetic studies have given us another perspective. They suggest that it is possible that the Scythians and other Scythian cultures descended from the earlier Yamnaya culture, which existed in the region of the Pontic Steppe in around 3000 BCE, and are therefore the favoured culture who spoke the last common ancestor language of the Indo-European languages. So the Yamnaya could be the speakers of Proto-Indo-European that we described in episode 28 of volume 2. And they could be the ancestors of the Scythians. We believe that all of the steppe cultures related to the Scythians such as the Cimmerians, the Sarmatians and the Alans spoke Indo-European languages. And the Scythian language itself is believed to be closely related to the Avestan language which was used to write the Avesta, which are the sacred scriptures of Zoroastrianism and something we explored more closely in episode 5. So we can find a link to the Indo-Iranian group of languages and particularly the Iranians. So the Scythian cultures are part of the wider Iranian cultures, which includes the Medes, the Persians, the Parthians, and the Bactrians. Warrior Culture Regardless of how different and uncivilised the non-classical world cultures may have seemed, we can be sure that any successful society from this period of history would have had to have been competent warriors and the Scythians were no exception. Stories of the Scythian warriors began to conjure up images of romanticised barbarians taking the scalps of their enemies and drinking their blood. We can feel confident that Scythian warriors were good at fighting while mounted on a horse. Horse riding was not necessarily a new thing. Military leaders of many 2nd millennium BCE cultures could be found surveying the battlefield from the convenience of horseback. The horses actually used within warfare were often pulling chariots, so the use of mounted horses in direct engagement was likely to have been mastered by steppe cultures of which the Scythians are at the forefront. We can see this depicted in many 1st millennium BCE pieces of art, both parietal and portable. The first pictures of horse archers are pictures of Neo-Assyrians who were the Assyrians who arose from the depletions of the late Bronze Age collapse. Historians suspect that the Neo-Assyrians developed this skill through contact with ancient Iranian cultures. It will come as absolutely no surprise to learn that the Scythians were highly skilled horse archers and this would give them the power of speed on the battlefield. It was the levels of military speed coupled with impact that the earliest classical societies could only imagine. This kind of mounted cavalry expertise could only have been possible with the development of horse riding accessories such as saddles and stirrups and we can see the earliest developments of such things centred around the middle of the 1st millennium BCE with examples being found in Assyrian and Chinese peoples which once again point us towards a centre of development within the Eurasian steppe which would have been contactable by both cultures this is somewhat speculative but it could be viewed as a logical assumption based on what we already know the Scythian bows are very small and powerful and therefore they are highly practical for mounted warfare we may also see that the Scythian bowman would have kept both his bow and arrows in a leather goritus which he would have worn on his person. The bow itself would have been in the shape of a wavy letter W or the typical shape of the outline of the top of your upper lip. Quite distinct and resemblant of the small bow of Cupid, the Roman god of passion and desire and this would have undoubtedly been where Cupid's bow originated from as the successful mounted archers of steppe culture would have been embraced as a development of classical world military. Non-steppe societies would have likely underestimated the abilities of Scythian warriors who not only mastered the art of cavalry warfare on the open plains of the steppe but also would have understood the value of recognizing the power of the seasons so that when societies from warmer climates invaded steppe territory during the winter months the Scythians would have been happy in some circumstances to scorch the earth and retreat leaving their invaders camped in cold and infertile territory quite unlike the circumstances they were used to in the warmer climates. When the Scythians did choose to do battle, they were every bit the caricatured barbarian warrior that we may wish for them to be. Herodotus tells us of one of the earliest examples in human history of the scalping of enemies. As a slaughtered enemy of the Scythians, you may find yourself to be beheaded, followed up with having your skin sliced from ear to ear, and then having your skull shaken out. At that point your scalp may be carefully scraped clean and then displayed on the bridle of the warrior's horse as a trophy of victory and personal triumph. The best man would be the man with the most scalps. Certainly the use of horses was not just restricted to military purposes. Horses would have had a great many uses to the Scythians. Due to their nomadic nature the horses would have been ideal beasts of burden for transporting belongings from one place to another as societies are likely to have moved between summer and winter camps and also the livestock farming methods would have involved more in the way of pastoral farming which is the art of keeping control of herds of animals in their natural habitat as opposed to the complete domestication of wholly sedentary societies. Pastoral farming would have been improved by mounted farmers able to encircle a wild herd more ably on the back of a horse. Add to this fact that breeding horses would have produced a good source of meat, milk and hides, then the horse, in its natural habitat, was a huge asset to the Scythians. Royal Scyths From one perspective, the Scythians were a semi-nomadic society with elements of a modernising way of life. From another perspective, the Scythians were a throwback to the earliest Neolithic societies with their nomadic ways. The reality is that the Scythians didn't need to advance their culture in the same way that those heavily populated areas of the Mediterranean and the Middle East did. But that didn't mean that they didn't have a lot of the same fundamental human values that existed in all societies, such as the desire to own beautiful objects and the desire to be held in high individual esteem. Tribal leaders were comparable to kings in Scythian society and the Scythians would even have an aristocratic class among their numbers. These could be referred to as the Royal Siths and we would have found that some among their number would have been married into other royal houses to strengthen bonds. The greatest warriors and the best horse breeders would have belonged to this aristocratic class. Different Scythian peoples would have had varying degrees of centralization, depending on the mood of the monarch and how he wished to govern the tribes under his jurisdiction. We do not see writing as a maintenance of law in these cultures. So it is possible that the Royal Siths may have been responsible for ensuring that the Scythian people were governed in accordance to the wishes of the king. So the king would have issued the instruction and the Royal Siths would have distributed that instruction to the tribes. It is conceivable that the laws and instructions that your parents lived under were totally different for you as the new king might have had new ideas and there would have been nothing as a point of reference to bygone generations. We can also see evidence of an affluence which takes us back to the human desire to own things of great wealth and treasure such as gold and golden artifacts molded with depictions of Scythian warriors that have been uncovered that further demonstrate the glory of the spoils of war. The currency of the Scythians was booty and the better you were as a warrior the more horses you could buy with your booty, as an example. We can see evidence of an affluent royal Sith class in the graves of their aristocrats, filled with precious artefacts. So not only can we get an insight into the desires and stratification of Scythian societies through these graves, but also an idea of the burial and belief cultures of the Scythians. The greatest members of their societies were buried in burial mounds called kurgans which appear to be like small hillocks on the landscape but they possess great treasures of an ancient age. These Iron Age treasures are often constructed from bronze but they can be gold and silver too. Some post holes at particular kurgans suggest that a simple wooden construction may have been built, perhaps covered in cloth or hide and for the purpose of being a gathering place for rituals similar to those described by Herodotus. Herodotus describes these rituals as being drug fueled and the residue of papava and cannabis in ceremonial gold vessels supports this observation. Religion. The fact that we mention Herodotus quite a lot is a testament to the value of his work and of course there are many revisionists who like to paint Herodotus in a different light as a pro-Greek fantasist who had his own agenda or was easily led by the information given to him by others and being of less value to history than the more scientifically and less mythologizing nature of Thucydides. Without the work of Herodotus, our understanding of the 1st millennium BCE world would be so much less than it is. The archaeology of the Scythians seems to prove Herodotus right about much of his knowledge and writings regarding their culture and so he is a vital source of information and education for all of us. Herodotus talks of horse sacrifice during burial rituals and the excavation of hundreds of ceremonially buried horses proves this to be correct. The horse sacrifice itself was quite ceremonial and described in gruesome detail by Herodotus, who refers to a priest being the master of ceremonies. So there was a religious class among the Scythians, but steppe culture points us towards a shamanic style of priestship. Other animals were held in high regard, such as the stag depicted in Scythian paintings, but the pig was not such a welcome animal and as such it was not sacrificed because of its lack of value. The horse was revered though and horse sacrifice was an honour. A Scythian pantheon of gods has been identified But at the risk of suddenly turning on Herodotus, a lot of the deities have been compared to Greek gods. And I personally think that this may have been a patronising practice of Herodotus towards non-Greek cultures, whereby he would say that other cultures' deities were just versions of Greek gods. And we also see this when the Phoenician deity called Melkart is reported by Herodotus to be the equivalent of the sacred Greek hero Heracles. Paganism was a natural religion of ancient societies so we should expect to see deities of the same aspects of the natural world in all ancient societies so there was no need to connect one society's deities to another. The burial of a Scythian king is reported as a huge occasion and this would be supported by the condition of the graves. The grave goods would have maintained the king's status and wealth in whatever afterlife he was headed to. This is not dissimilar to the kind of burial we described with Queen Buabi in the 3rd millennium BCE in Mesopotamia which we talked about during volume 2 and specifically episode 3 on the city of Ur. Puabi's grave was full of grave goods and an entourage of humans and animals and we see this level of preparation for a journey to another existence in Scythia also. Herodotus even tells us stories of mourners self-harming as part of the funerary grieving for the lost monarch, such as cutting chunks out of their own ears and ripping out their own hair. Art Scythian art forms are dominated by animals and anthropomorphic designs and they are influenced by neighbouring cultures as grave goods demonstrate. A variety of art forms are evident. There is much in the way of metalworking with various metals and with intricately designed jewellery and ceremonial weaponry which is typical of many ancient societies. We may not be hugely surprised, but it is notable that the skill levels of the metal casting and working is of a high standard. Discoveries from Scythian sites have demonstrated evidence of different methods of artwork for different purposes. Some of the jewellery would have been designed to be attached to clothing, and the Scythians would also work with fabrics to create wall hangings and rugs with embroidery and a style of textile work called applique. ...where small pieces of fabric and felt are sewn into the base fabric. All of these aspects discussed in this week's episode point towards a successful society... ...who were creating enough spare time to be able to dedicate themselves to more leisurely pursuits. The story of the Scythians The origin of the Scythians is somewhat unknown... Certainly semi-nomadic tribes who utilised horses predate the Scythian era. So this really was a steppe way of life and the Scythians were just another steppe culture. Their area of origin is unknown but their Aryan lingual links suggest that they emerged from the Caucasus and then migrated west into the Pontic steppe in the typical direction of all nomadic steppe cultures. This appears to have happened from around 900 BCE onwards. The Cimmerian culture would have been the steppe culture who would have already been in the Pontic steppe around this time and in the lands of the modern country of Ukraine. To the south of the Caucasus the Urartians emerged and they were the buffer between the Scythians and the expansionist aggressions of the Assyrian Empire. It is during this period that the Scythians became comparatively settled and established their identity as a political entity during the first couple of centuries. The Scythians' international reputation would be tested during the 7th century BCE. The Assyrian Empire was becoming very powerful and a threat to all neighbouring peoples and their international links. So the Median chieftain called Kashtariti approached the Scythian king Ishpaka to form an anti-Assyrian alliance that would also include Cimmerians and Maneans. The Manians came from the lands in and around the Iranian plateau that was occupied by the Medes. Ishpaka would be killed in the battle against the Assyrian emperor Esarhaddon, the conqueror of Egypt and the son of Sennacherib. Ishpaka's successor, was a man called Bartatua. Bartatua would take a different approach to the Assyrian question by seeking an alliance with Esarhaddon. And Esahaddon seemed keen to have an ally against the Medes. And so Bartatua would marry Esarhaddon's daughter and cement a Scythian alliance with the most powerful empire of the time, the Assyrians. This alliance was successful enough that the Scythians were able to take control of the lands of Media with the blessing of the Assyrians. The end of the 7th century BCE was a time of chaos in the Middle East and the Medes rebelled against their enemies under their King Syaxares and so Scythian dominance of the Medes ended. The Assyrian Empire was in a steep and terminal decline as we describe this sequence of events during Volume 2, specifically Episode 7. It may be the case that the Scythians exploited the opportunity to campaign and according to the Greek historian Strabo, the Scythians, under their new king Madeus, the son of Bartatua, even raided the Egyptians. The emergence and prosperity of the Medes and then the Achaemenid Persians kept the Scythians out of Middle Eastern lands and so the Scythians would concentrate more on improving their lives in the steppe and their relationship with the emerging societies of Greece. The Scythian kings that we have mentioned would have been kings of their local tribes and we have to remember that most of the tribes of the areas to the north of the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea would have all been regarded as Scythian societies. So what one society was doing in the Asiatic East would have made no difference to what another society was doing in the European West. This was not a political nation, but a group of tribes similar to the Germanic societies and the Celtic societies that we have recently talked about. The reason that we have some detail about Scythian culture is thanks to the writings of the 5th century BCE Greek historian Herodotus. Herodotus would have likely have been welcomed into Scythian lands due to the links that had been created between Scythia and Greece. There would have even have been academic links with Scythian individuals choosing to live in Greek lands to enhance their learning and the city of Athens may have been employing the services of Scythians to act as police officers within their city. It may have been Greek influence that modernised Scythian culture and it might have been the power of emerging neighbours such as the Achaemenids and the Macedonians that forced the Scythians to modernise further still. The 4th century BCE is the critical century for the Scythians with a lot going on around them we see a lot of royal graves containing precious artefacts that have been undoubtedly influenced by Greek art styles. The archaeological site of Kamensko-Gorodishi demonstrates a Scythian town and therefore a consideration towards a sedentary life, if only for the more aristocratic Scythians. Under King Philip II, Macedonia started military action against the Scythians who had had a great many of their tribes united by the king Attius, a highly regarded Scythian king. Attius himself might not have been of royal blood and simply a usurper and Philip II felt it necessary to challenge him. The battles culminated in 339 BCE when Philip won an intense battle where even his own horse was killed But the Scythian king Attius, apparently now 90 years old, was also killed It seems that this series of conflicts weakened the Scythians The Sarmatians were another steppe culture thought to be closely related to the Scythians and they may have migrated from lands north of Scythia but they muscled in on Ukrainian territory becoming a threat to Scythian culture. The Scythians were somewhat marginalised over the next two centuries by this Sarmatian expansion and they ended up surviving on the coasts of the Black Sea and the Crimean Peninsula. Alexander the Great's victories over the Scythians were actually against the Saka culture in the very easternmost extremity of Scythian cultures. So it is unlikely that Alexander's father Philip's victories over Attius a few years earlier would have had a lot of influence over the fortunes of the Saka at the Battle of Yaxartes, which took place near the modern Uzbek capital city of Tashkent, close to the Sea Daria which is a river known in antiquity as the Yaksatis. Alexander the Great would be victorious over the Saka here. After this period in history, the Saka would migrate southwards over the next few generations before settling the lands around the Indus River in modern Pakistan and northwest India. Back in the heartlands of the Black Sea and the Pontic Steppe and the Scythians were being marginalised. Towards the end of the 3rd century BCE, a new capital city was constructed on the Crimean peninsula, signalling that the Sarmatians had pushed the Scythians out of their former lands to the north of the Black Sea. The Crimea was always a popular location for trade, so there was a lot of Greek influence there, and the culture of the Crimea was a mixture of Greek and Scythian culture. The Crimea was subjugated by the infamous King Mithridates VI of Pontus before coming under the influence of the Romans following the demise of the Pontics during the 1st century BCE which we explored in various stages between our episodes 31 and 37. The culture persisted to some degree until it was probably subjugated by the Goths and the Huns during the 3rd and 4th century and then we don't really hear or see much about it after, so Scythian culture was marginalised and diluted in the centuries following the 4th century BCE. The related cultures of the Sarmatians and the Saka went in different directions. The Sarmatians themselves were absorbed by the Goths, who were distinguished as the Goetungi, and likely ancestral to the Ostrogoths, before the entire region was swept up by the Hunnic expansions westwards during the 4th and 5th centuries. The Saka migrated into the regions of the Greco-Bactrian kingdom, which was a kingdom established around the Hindu Kush in the wake of the break-up of Alexander the Great's Macedonian Empire. So the Saka would add to the rich mix of cultures that would lead to a few centuries of indo greco scythian related kingdoms and tribal alliances, which would be a precursor to the Kushan Empire, which we will focus on in a future episode. You know, I didn't even mention about the mummification of uh, the of the Scythians. Like, so they mummified their bodies that they buried as well. Like, not all of them, but uh, certainly there was a phase where they mummified the bodies. So they're obviously this same uh, belief in an afterlife that maybe the Egyptians had in that they needed to um, send their their kings off into the afterlife fully equipped and and. Uh, and very much as as preserved as he possibly could be. So, uh, well, certainly male and female mummies were found as well. So, like, maybe royal families, um, you know, were treated with the same respect. If you were related to the king, you could probably uh, end up being mummified, uh, even if you was a, a young girl. But nonetheless, I mean, so, such a fascinating culture and uh, really were um, uh, central to the, you know, the trade routes of between major societies and, and we're going to see that more and more as we go next week into the story of uh, the Huns. Um, we're going to see uh, a bit more of that, the uh, progression of steppe cultures and and how they became ever more uh, aggressive. Now for the regular listeners to the podcast, you'll be fully aware of the uh, of the History of the World podcast website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. Com. If you go there, um, you can support the podcast by clicking on the Patreon link and signing up to make a monthly donation to help me c- to keep the podcast going. And uh, when you do that, you become a lifelong member of the History of the World Podcast Illuminati. As has Kaiser FX, uh, this football st one and uh, lassie Hildra have all become uh, new members of the history of the world podcast Illuminati so welcome to you all and um, just uh, just as a point of reference um, even if you can't make a financial contribution you can still support the podcast just rate and review the podcast uh, wherever you find us now uh, let's see if anyone has reviewed the podcast this week. I'm just having a little bit of a click through here. I haven't... Do you know what? I've, I'm ill-prepared. I haven't even looked. Let's have a look and see what we've got. This could be a bit of a surprise. I hope there's no swear words. Um, uh, Jean-Luc Villa uh, from Great Britain has put, ''Great podcast, easy to listen, very clear and well documented. The summary episodes are great. Congratulations to Chris.'' um and uh oh, well, that's the only one that's the only uh review in um in apple podcasts this week so uh, that was quite a uh, brief that's uh almost done me a little bit of a favor because it leaves me a bit more time to read out listener messages so let's move on to that quickly okay so first one we've got is from stephen walsh who's written in and put um hi chris Having dipped in and out of your many podcasts, I decided to start from the very beginning. I've just listened to Volume 1, Episode 6, Prehistoric Speech and Language. A few things occurred to me while I was listening. Firstly, that language may have first originated as sign language. It's generally accepted that babies can learn to sign before they can actually use actual speech. Uh, This being the case, sign language could have become uh, quite developed before speech was made possible due to changes in physiology. I seem to remember Noam Chomsky was full of ideas about language acquisition. Signing is also more useful for hunting and sneaking up on prey animals. I also seem to remember a theory that the hand and speech centres of the brain are close together and may have developed in parallel. As a former crafts teacher... It used to always fascinate me that kids would go quiet when doing something with their hands, but often stopped if they started talking. That that sounds a lot like me. Um, I also came across a synopsis uh, synopsis of a book called, uh, The Pattern Seekers, A New Theory of Human Invention by Simon Baron-Cohen, which postulates that autism in early humankind may have had uh, the effect of driving evolution as an organizer since autism stimulates if and then patterns um a quick search found the following article he sent an article with a link um i hope that you might find it of interest i've asked him actually to share that on media so that we can all enjoy the links and um, it was good to see you in person on the study of antiquity and middle age youtube clip and be able to put a face to the voice i very much enjoy your podcast and look forward to making my way through all of them um thank you so much uh, Stephen walsh and um yes i like to be honest with you i think you've taken um, the content of that podcast episode beyond a point which uh, which i stopped at to be honest with you so um I particularly like the idea of, of saying that sign language is very useful during hunting of course i i certainly do believe that humans would have had to have developed a, a strong signing um Ability and and certainly we see that in our in our primate uh, in our primate cousins that they you know the facial expressions and all of that kind of thing is is very much a part of their communication. So um, I think that's a very fair point. Uh, Ryan Murtha has written in Phoenician Synagogue of Satan. Have you read Shakespeare's Phoenix and Turtle? Possibly the world's most obscure poem. It was published in a little book called Love's Martyr. And the title page alludes to Torquato Tasso's Jerusalem Delivered, 1581. Well, turtle duffs were sacrificed at Jerusalem. However, the Phoenicians practiced black magic and child sacrifice. That's what the poem's about. Here's a talk by the Phoenician Freemason about the poem he's covering the subject and misdirecting. Oh, he sent me a, a YouTube link there. I'll, I'll have to watch that later. Uh, Phoenician writers on, uh, writers on Black Magic include Yambich, Yamblichus and uh, Porphyry, who are popular with Freemasons and Freemason uh, mythologies, all about Hiram Abif, based on Phoenician king Hiram I, famed for his involvement in the building of Solomon's Temple. Solomon took on Phoenician women and allowed their friends to build temples Who, with decidedly unsavoury rites, These are the eyes wide shut crowd and they became immensely wealthy 5,000 years ago selling Lebanon cedars to Egypt. To this day they are the world's aristocratic elite. They just erected three Phoenician arches in Trafalgar Square, New York City Hall and the Capitol in Washington DC. One, okay, three seems a bit weird. These are the people that Elijah fought against and the Romans thought they were so poisonous Carthage had to be destroyed utterly. If you want to read some more limited Hangout stuff about them, search for Miles Mathis, Ancient Spooks. There's four papers on them, Ryan. Um, well, once again, I'll say the same as I said to Stephen Walsh, he should taken... Um, this whole subject way beyond a point where I stopped and um, you know once again I think with anything like this I think it's, it's much better if it's shared with the History of the World podcast community you know there's there's thousands of listeners and, and a great number of them engage on the social media so I think rather than just sharing it with me um, share it with everyone there's quite likely going to be a lot of people that know a lot more about this particular subject than me so you'll probably get more of a a comprehensive response from them. I, I must admit, I I don't know a great deal about what you've what you've mentioned there, Ryan, at all. To be honest with you, so um, I hope that somebody out there maybe um, is, um, you know, their their uh, knowledge is awakened or their or their um, interest is stimulated by by what you've written in with there, Ryan. So thank you very much for writing in. It's very kind of you. And uh, to all of you, please do write in, do write in and let me know what you think about the episodes. It's, it's always interesting. And uh, reviewing uh, everyone's attitude towards the episodes, um, you know, like I think we would get, I think people were getting a little bit bored with the Roman story. I think we, they, were, they were itching for me to move on to other cultures. And I noticed that when I published the episodes on the Celts and the migration period of Europe. Um, there was uh, there was a, almost a surge of listeners, so it did seem that they were very very popular indeed. And uh, so, thank you, and 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 please do write in and let me know what you think about the content of the episodes. Got a uh, message uh, through to the uh, podcast from John S. Smith, a regular listener to the podcast. He's put um, he's put, hello Chris. I know you're way past the Roman Republic, but what do you think? of cincinnatus my favorite roman story truth or fiction best wishes john um uh well i don't know um a lot about cincinnatus but i know he was um a patrician from the early republic years and he was uh, noted for his great virtue uh, among his society and as such he's he's sort of been celebrated especially in the names of of cities such as Cincinnati uh in the USA I believe is uh, derived from from this man's name so um he's obviously his uh what he stands for is is uh well celebrated but obviously this era was written by later historians so I also feel that although these these characters were alive they might not have been as as great as 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 historians make them out to be but then who knows he, he might have been you know I wasn't there this is one of my favourite catchphrases not it I wasn't there so I can't say for sure um, he's also put what if Boudicca and Virgin Jeterix had a child could he or she beat the Romans well um, I think uh, Boudicca and Virgin Jeterix uh, would have certainly had some very ferocious offspring the bloodlines would have uh, been uh, very favourable indeed um, however, both of those were defeated by the Romans, and uh, the Romans were just such a strong machine that I don't think anyone could have beaten them back then. I just think they were too strong, and I think if you if you're going to challenge the Romans, you you're better off waiting till after the fourth century, I think, in, uh, to take them on when they're a little bit more vulnerable. But thank you so much, John Smith. That's uh, John S. Smith. Uh, very kind of you to to send me those messages. Anyway. Uh, I'm going to wrap up now for this week but thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Next week uh, an exciting week we're going to be talking about the Huns. I can't wait for that. That should be great the Huns anyway. Uh just make sure that you uh, have a great week and I uh, hope you're all uh, bearing up well under the circumstances. Uh, uh we're almost uh, we're, we're hopefully looking at the light at the end of the tunnel uh, for this uh a global pandemic so hopefully we're going to be on top of that soon and be getting back to normal being able to go and visit great historical sites which is i think the one thing that i miss the most uh is that ability to do that but uh hopefully we'll all be back and just stay in good mental health everyone all this week and um, by all means if you if you are struggling please do drop me a line and i'll, I'll certainly endeavor to send you a message back and try and uh, Keep your spirits up. But uh, until next week, until we talk about the Huns, uh, have a great week and be good. Come to the, the com and join all the other hot worlders on our wide range of social media Why not support the podcast by clicking the Patreon link or buying me a book and becoming a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati Drop me a line at, at com and let me know what you thought of this week's episode See you next time